This edition of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Fusion Conference, an invitation-only event for school and district leaders. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the EdSurge podcast. I'm your co-host, Mary Jo Matta. Now, when it comes to the biggest EdTech stories of the year thus far, Thought leaders, educators, and policy wonks all have their opinions about what we can and should be reading. But what about the writers themselves, the education reporters? What are folks from the likes of Education Week, the Heckinger Report, and the Chronicle for Higher Education reading about and contemplating these days? My EdSurge colleague, Jenny Abamu, recently ventured to the Education Writers Association Conference on May 31st through June 2nd in Washington, D.C. to get their thoughts. Hello, everyone. I'm excited to be here. Last week, I got the opportunity to sit down with a group of reporters focused on the education technology beat. Benjamin Harold of Education Week, Nicole Dobo of the Heckinger Report, and Goldie Blumenstick from the Chronicle of Higher Education to hear their thoughts on the biggest education technology stories of the year, what they're working on right now, and whether the federal government is helping or hurting the integration of ed tech nationwide. So Jenny, is there anything you can share to tease our listeners as to what tidbits they'll hear during the interview? Well, there were a lot of things, really really interesting topics brought up during the conversation, um, particularly because we looked back at some of the ed tech stories that people missed in the past, and some of those things focused around cybersecurity, in the K-12 and higher education sector, also broadband funding, things that people are really worried about since the FCC chairman has changed, and looking at budget cuts between STEM education, so some people want to expand STEM education, and some people are looking to cut the budget, and what does that mean for students and teachers? Hmm, all right, well, cutting the budget never seems to get a lot of supporters, but I'm going to let you listeners decide what you think. So we'll get to the interview right after this. The EdSurge Fusion Conference is an invitation-only event for school and district leaders from around the country. They'll be coming together in the San Francisco Bay Area from November 1st to the 3rd to talk about personalized learning and school transformation. If this sounds interesting to you, please request an invitation or learn about sponsorship opportunities by going to the following bit.ly link, bit.ly slash edsurgefusion. That's one word. Again, bit.ly slash edsurgefusion. All right, ladies and gents, it's time to get to the meat and potatoes of this podcast. We bring a lot of thought leaders on here. We bring educators, administrators, product developers, founders. But what about other education writers outside of EdSurge? Jenny Abamu had the esteemed pleasure of interviewing three of those folks. Apple, Google, and Microsoft are battling to take over the classroom. Ransom hacks in both K-12 and higher education have compromised private information of millions of vulnerable students. New computer science courses are entering classrooms around the nation. These issues point to the heart of education technology coverage in today's news landscape. However, these and other similar stories are ones you might have missed since moves from the White House have dominated the airways since election. So we're going to take a look back at some of the important education stories you might have missed. This is the EdSurge On Air podcast. My name is Jenny Abamu, and I'll be your host for our first EdTech Reporters Roundtable at the Education Writers Association. 
Today, I'm joined by an exemplary group of reporters focused on education technology beat, including Benjamin Harold from Education Week, Nicole Dobo from Hecklinger Report, Goldie Blumenstick from the Chronicle of Higher Education. I want to thank you guys all for joining me today. Hi, how's everyone? Great, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here, thanks. Excellent. So let's begin with a general question. Um, in your opinion, what are some of the what is one of the biggest education technology stories that readers might have missed last year that they should have read? So let's start with you, Nicole. Um, I think there's been a real push in schools to, uh, to use a jargon term, personalized learning. And um, it's an old idea that's sort of getting new life. Uh, and um, there is a lot of push in some states like Rhode Island to use this. And Benjamin, you had a big story last year. You actually won an EWA National Award for your investigative piece looking into cyber charters. Um, this story was released at the beginning of November last year, the height of the election period, but covers important topics that people might have missed. So tell us a bit about your story and kind of how you came about to putting that together. Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not sure cyber charters were front of mind for everyone in early November, but uh, we, were, you know, we were real pleased to get it out, and I was part of a, a large team at EdWeek that did this. So my colleague Ariana Prothero um, really focused on the lobbying that for-profit charter operators do, and I was really focusing on the operations of the school, and then we had a lot of research and support. Um, but you know, I, it's great to be able to do that because you know I've been covering online charters in various capacities going back almost six years. From the beginning, kind of had the sense of. We know that there's data out there that would show how often students are actually engaging in the schools and taking part in the learning. And it was really hard to get that data. And I was kind of knocking on doors and making calls for years trying to get it and without much luck. And, you know, we're still kind of chipping away at the stories as they came up. And then about a year ago, uh, I got an email out of the blue that said, you know, I'd like to tell you about my school. I've been reading your work and I think you might want to know what's going on here. And so that was really the start for the whole project. Can you talk a little bit about the school that you focused on, the, char the, char the school in Colorado, the big charter network? Um, and so uh, the school's name was Goal Academy, and that's Guided Online Academic Learning Academy. It's a full-time online charter school. Uh, the idea, at least at the time period we were covering, was that students would be spending about 90% of their time learning on online via you know software. Um, they do have kind of centers around the state where students could come in for tutoring help and so forth. Um, but it has over 4,000 students. It's the largest school in Colorado. Um, and what we found when we started digging into data, talking to students, talking to teachers and staff, and reviewing a ton of documents, was that on a typical day, only about one in four students actually logged into the software. Um, and there were a lot of financial, questionable financial activities going on um, at the top, including the school's founder who had started his own for-profit management company and uh, gave it a no-bid $5 million contract. So what should readers be looking for? Like when they look into your investigative piece, what two main points would you say they should take from that? I think one is to realize that online learning in general is playing an increasingly large role in K-12 education. And sometimes that's in the form of full-time charter schools. Sometimes it's in the form of kids just taking online classes. Online credit recovery is a huge deal. And a lot of times that kind of remains under the radar, almost invisible. But I think that, you know, not just our work, but a lot of great reporting that uh, others are doing as well is really starting to call attention to that. And that was one of the nice things about, you know, being recognized by EWA is just the sense that technology and online learning are a core part of education reporting now and, and are seen as such. Um, so that's one. And then two is, the data is there. The documents are there. We should be looking at that. We should. There's a lot of money going into these schools. We should be paying attention to whether kids are actually showing up 
floor and if uh, you know the public money is being handled appropriately. Nicole, you're nodding your head a lot. People can't see you, but I see you. Um, what, uh, what, what, what would you like to add to what Ben said? I, I couldn't agree more with what Ben said. Um, there is just so much money flowing and so many uh, marketers uh, knocking on the doors of schools, trying to sell them things, promising big things. And I think uh, a lot of teachers and administrators are um, scrambling to try to make sense of it all. Um, there's not a lot of good information on the efficacy of some of these programs. And I think that can make it hard for schools to choose uh, what they want to include in the classroom and what maybe isn't worth the time and money. I thought you're covering the higher education uh, sector. There's a lot of things that have happened last year, and I'm sure that went under quite a few people's radar because higher education and technology is not always what people mix together. Um, what kind of what story did you think was a really big highlight that people missed? I don't know if people if people missed it or if we've been having a harder time getting to it. Actually, I think going into the fall at the Chronicle through a project we call Relearning, um, we we don't call it EdTech per se. We think about it as innovation in which. EdTech sort of has a role, but not necessarily the only role. Um, there was, I think there was a lot of momentum behind stories about data analytics and the ethics and the use of data analytics in higher education. Um, obviously, it's a big issue in the K-12 sector, but increasingly in higher education as well. Also, a lot of stories, a lot of issues about the way distance learning was affect changing the teaching models and teaching the business models at institutions. And I think, to be honest, I think some of that was a little bit derailed by the election uh, um, and sort of by the, the hype about the election. Um, interestingly, I thought, though, <clears throat> for the Chronicle at least, uh, one thing that the election did, the election of Donald Trump and the campaign, it sort of focused on some other issues that maybe weren't as high on our agenda but then moved them up. We ended up through the fall and through the spring this year, we've been doing a lot more stories about information literacy and what that means in higher education. Um, it's a slightly different story in higher ed than it might be in a K-12 environment. Um, can I ask, yeah, did, sure. that, did that become a technology story at the Chronicle? Well, you know, it's or an innovation story. It's it wasn't an um, well, I grabbed it as an innovation story. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it doesn't we didn't come out of the innovation category necessarily. I think we don't have a tech we don't have a tech reporter per se. We don't even think about it that way. We just think about it as I mean, we went from twenty years ago the Chronicle had a tech section of probably ten reporters at one point or another, maybe eight or ten, and we don't we don't report it that way. At all we think about tech in a very different way, but it definitely had, you know, obviously tech components to it that were huge and important. And the other thing that was really a big story for us was, um, that did become a bigger story, was the whole cybersecurity issue. Um, hacking obviously was in the news in, uh, in the national political discourse, but colleges are among the places that are the most vulnerable to hacking. And also colleges are the places that produce the experts who can prevent hacking. And so we did several stories about kind of the need for more people in cybersecurity, um, I was very interested. This is again not a tech thing. I mean, the, the biggest the experts we spoke to about cybersecurity talked a lot about the biggest needs for people are not are they need to be tech skilled, but they also need to have an awareness of global politics, sociology. They need to understand the motivations of a hacker or and the political ramifications of why someone might be hacking on a, in a for a cybersecurity situation. So these were actually things I don't think of them as tech stories per se, but 
they clearly have a tech piece to them in a big way. Yeah, I like the way you guys are thinking about tech. So, you know, I kind of am that quote-unquote tech reporter, but I think more and more it's like everything either, everything can be a tech story. It's like I became the fake news guy. Right. Kind of. <laughs> not, not sure exactly how, but now it's like if there's a fake news story, it's, it's me. I mean, there's this thing in higher ed where they call it writing across the curriculum, where they just try to teach writing in science classes and teach writing in political science classes and in math classes even. Um, you know, and I think of it at the Chronicle as, you know, tech across the curriculum and try to tech across the newsroom maybe. Yeah, yeah. Just it, it's, right. it's a vital piece of everything right now. It's a vital piece of – it changes how we do our jobs. It certainly changes the way our universities and schools are doing their jobs. Are there particular stories you would point to to say, like, okay, if you want to learn about this a cybersecurity issue, you might want to start reading here? Specifically in the Chronicle? In the or, Chronicle or any no. other publication that you want to mention? Um, well, we, I mean, the story we did in our trends report this year had some really good data, I thought, on kind of the terrible gap between the need, the cybersecurity job need and, and the number of um, undergrads and graduate students being um, who are graduating each year in these fields. And the gap is growing and uh, the need is great. So if anyone's interested in cybersecurity and has the head for that kind of thing, <laughs> that's what we should be studying. Yeah. 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 Benjamin is raising his hand. <laughs> So now we're going to transition a little bit to the stories that you all are working on right now. Um, I'll start with uh, you and Nicole. Recently you wrote a piece about um, STEM, STEM education, and that is actually a pretty uh, prevalent topic as far as a lot of legislation has gone up, um, trying to get more STEM education, trying to get uh, students in, ready for a career in technical fields, etc. And so I'm going to just, for our listeners, I'm going to play a little clip kind of about uh, so you can see kind of where Trump and the administration thinks, how they're thinking about STEM education, et cetera. Multimedia, go, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us something about it. Hi, Dr. Whitson. First of all, congratulations on your incredible milestone today. You may know that my father recently signed the Inspire Women Act to encourage female participation in STEM fields across all aerospace um, areas and, and really with a focus on, on NASA. So encouraging women and girls to pursue STEM careers is a major priority for this administration. So that's something that you kind of talked about in your story a little bit. Can you go into a little bit about the STEM education and what's going on with the after-school programs and also with, uh, you mentioned a little bit about this uh, Inspire Women Act. Right, sure. Um, so shortly after the administration came out and said they want to support women in STEM, they released a budget that eliminated funding for after-school programs. And so, so a lot of the experts and educators that I talked to expressed um, a lot of um, concern about this because of uh, STEM programs um, after school can be a vital place to get kids interested in STEM fields outside of the classroom. And there, there is good research that shows that if a student isn't exposed to STEM before before high school, they, they won't go on to develop an interest. So um, it, it was a little befuddling for some folks to hear um, what you just played and then shortly thereafter hear that the budget was eliminated entirely. And just kind of thinking about it, what is, I mean, have you followed kind of the trends as, as far as people trying to do STEM education and legislation going into that? How does it make it more difficult for them or why is this important? Well, I, I think a lot of school districts right now are scrambling because they don't know uh, what money is going to be coming for programs that they have been able to rely on year in and year out. And um, on the ground of a school district, beyond the hoopla of D.C., um, districts have to, to plan and decide what they're going to do. And when there is confusion 
or unclear, un, you know, just unclear information coming on what money they're going to have, it sort of freezes them. They're not sure where where to go. Um, so that could be that could be bad for innovation in schools. I think. Now I know this is a little bit unrelated, but you did mention in another story, uh, kind of the lack of leadership in the office of ed tech. And I don't know if that could be a reason that there's not a clear policy direction. I don't know if that's something that you, you guys have thought about, but you did mention a little bit. Yeah, and another piece um, that um, some of my coworkers and I at Hockinger did was a look back at the first 100 days of the administration. And um, as far as I checked, um, as of recently, there's no one leading the ed tech office even now. So it can be difficult to get information on what their agenda is going to be. Um, and so from my point of view, it makes it difficult to articulate what their um, their plan is. How influential do you think that office is? It seems on the higher ed side, it's more, um, you know, almost more bully pulpit than money. I don't know how it bears on the K-12 side. That's fair. I, I think they, they sort of set like a grand, you know, vision for folks. Ben, what, I'm going to toss to you. Do you agree with that? We, we did a story kind of trying to get some perspective from the field on this um, because the same sense is like it's, it's kind of a vacuum there right now um, and it got some very interesting takes so there were a lot of folks at the state level I talked to who are involved with initiatives around open education resources or future ready and those kinds of programs that have had federal support in recent years who said you know it will yeah we have stuff to not have Washington shining a spotlight on what we're doing but these are initiatives that started in states and will continue in states. And, you know, we're disappointed that there may not be the continued attention, but the work can continue on. And then there's some people who are a little more skeptical of the field and say, you know, one of the shortcomings of the uh, office under the Obama administration was that they didn't really attach funding or laws or regulations to what they did. And so the, the, that camp kind of was more likely to believe that a lot of these initiatives are going to wither on the stem because the... They, there's nothing that's going to force states and districts to do them. And, you know, I thought one of the more interesting analyses I heard was that because there is this vacuum, that the leadership role might be more likely to be filled by the private sector. And certainly this is a private sector-friendly administration. They've talked very openly about their preference for market-based leadership on a whole number of fronts. And so the sense could be that, you know, uh, in the ed tech field that some of the big players, technology players, might have a more prominent seat at the table on the policy side. It's interesting that you mentioned open educational resources because of all these sort of movements. That feels like the one that seems to, at this point, have a lot of momentum behind it, you know, from the public sector and the private sector. I mean, and from the nonprofit sector, it's got a lot of forces working in that respect. So yeah, I kind of wonder. I don't. I think away. that one's going to continue to go because it seems mm -hmm. like even the publishers are making a lot of moves to make, you know, they're not exactly free providing free openly licensed material, but they're certainly providing technologies to make things more uh, sort of amenable to the open environment. And your latest story, uh, Benjamin, also focuses on the Federal Communications Commission. And you talk about E-rates. Can you kind of break down what that is for the audience, for people who are not following that, and kind of what it means for uh, why they should be concerned about what's going on? Sure. I mean, one of the biggest, uh, almost invisible federal funding streams for schools and libraries is the E-rate program. It helps them offset the cost of telecommunication services. Increasingly, that means broadband. And for schools around the country, it's been a boom. I mean, that's how, you know, the connectivity is really happening in American schools, particularly in rural schools. And it's another area where this kind of uncertainty with the transition and the kind of lack of attention to some of these issues is causing a lot of wariness in the K-12 sector. So there's a new leadership at the Federal Communications Commission 
uh, President Trump appointed uh, Vajit Pai, who was uh, on the commission as a commissioner, is now the chairman, and he brings very different ideas to the table than his predecessor. Um, different and, ideas meaning? Well, uh, about the role that the FCC should play. His predecessor, Tom Wheeler, a Democrat who was much more uh, what some would consider activist, felt the FCC should be heavily regulating uh, a lot of things and taking a direct hand in um, E-rate and other programs. And uh, Mr. Pai is much more hands-off, uh, you know, that uh, decisions should be made at the states and kind of divesting a lot of this authority from the FCC. And so for schools, there's a sense of, okay, is the E-rate funding going to remain the same? Is the mechanism by which the funds are distributed going to remain the same? Are these new rules that were put in place under the Obama FCC to help rural school districts um, build fiber networks to increase their connectivity? Are those rules going to be uh, stay in place and maintain the same. And there's a lot of uncertainty around that, in part because the FCC and the organization that administers the E-rate program have been sending out letters to mostly rural districts saying, hey, these plans that you thought were approved, we actually have a whole lot more questions about now. So freak out would be a little strong, but it's getting there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to pivot from the federal government a little bit and kind of go to your latest story, or one of your latest stories, um, looking at Purdue's University of Kaplan and kind of what that means. And also Mitch Daniels was here with us today. And so I'm sure that you have more to add to that. So can you break down for our audience kind of what that was and then what you gained from Mitch Daniels being here today? Um, so a few weeks ago, Purdue University announced in a very surprise move. Um, actually, today, one of the sessions, the uh, gentleman who ran the session said his first reaction was, wait, what? <laughs> when he heard this news that Purdue was going to be buying um, Kaplan University. And to be honest, that's exactly what I tweeted when I first heard that news, wait, what? Because it just seems such an audacious move. Um, it's not actually, it's a funny kind of a purchase. It's more like a 30-year relationship that Purdue and Kaplan University are engaging in, where Purdue will basically be sort of taking on the 32,000 students of Kaplan and having having basically the Kaplan University run under the auspices of Purdue, of a new entity that Purdue University is going to be setting up. Um, one of the, the story I've done a few stories on this already. One of the stories that's been intriguing to me is, you know, Purdue is calling this a new public university. Um, though the, the um, as some reporters in um, Indiana had first reported, um, they also enacted some laws in the state that mean some of these some of the governance for this new university won't be as public as a traditional public university in Indiana. And I think that's raising some questions. There's been you were particularly talking about the funding streams, is that correct? Or no, I mean, just the public records laws, things mm -hmm. like I mean, it's not going to be getting state funding. That's Purdue University has said that. But mm -hmm. it's not going to be, you know, under the, under state laws in Indiana, there's a lot of th records you can get about the public university in Indiana. This university will be a lot more private than that. Um, in fact, it's going to, in some ways, be more private than it was as an entity owned by a publicly traded company because publicly traded companies often have to disclose information about enrollments and things like that as part of their quarterly earnings reports. And it won't be, and, and their earnings and their profits and where they spend on marketing and things like that. And this university may or may not have to reveal some of that information. Um, faculty Senate in, um, in, in, at Purdue University has raised serious questions about it. Um, interestingly, today when um, Mitch Daniels spoke in the, at the EWA conference, he took a few digs at He's kind of careful to not dig specifically at the Purdue faculty, but he sort of took a few digs at higher education's propensity to be innovative in general, and he thinks that it's not. Um, and he said faculty are, you know, in many cases are um, intransigent about change and unwilling to consider change, and they, the, 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 um, the free inquiry and the sort of the, the quest for innovation that they bring to so many things, they don't bring to 
to ideas that affect innovation at their own institutions. So he's, I think there's going to be some internal fights at Purdue and about how this thing will play out. Obviously, there will be some issues nationally with the accreditor and with the education department as well. So it's a, it, it's a fascinating model. We've written a lot at the Chronicle about this sort of this new, this uh, what I call the embedded for-profit, how for-profit companies, not just colleges, but for-profit tech companies, analytics companies, distance ed providers are sort of embedding themselves more into the fabric of traditional colleges and there's not really a natural governance system to sort of keep oversight on some of that. And I mean, in some ways, this is like meta. <laughs> this is like the meta embedded for-profit right here. Yeah, I was uh, doing a story recently in Pittsburgh where Carnegie Mellon has really started to insinuate itself into this kind of K-12 network uh, mm -hmm. like that as well. And then Google is insinuating itself into Carnegie Mellon. So there's this private sector higher ed right. K-12 network that in some ways is great. Like oh. they're doing awesome stuff, but it's also like, hmm, there's a lot of questions around oh, this. Yeah, well. I mean, I, when, I, when I wrote that embedded for profit story a few, um, I guess more than a year ago at this point, um, it's not like a bad thing, but it's a very new thing. Yeah. You know, people know how to handle the outsourced bookstore or the outsourced dining hall, but these a lot of these new companies and new opportunities, they're much more embedded into the what happens in the classroom and what happens with, this, with the advising system. It touches much more closely at the core of what happens to the student life and the faculty life. And I don't know that higher ed has really quite figured out, even has begun to appreciate that this is a different phenomenon. All right, so we're almost out of time. So for this last question, I'll just have you guys kind of think, um, covering the ed tech, Sphere. What is one thing that you've learned? Something unique about covering ed tech? I'll give you two seconds to kind of think about it. I know for me, I find it interesting, at least that covering ed tech for has been a different kind of sphere. It's a very um, corporate type of education. It's almost education business. So that's different from what I usually did before, which was also in general news and kind of looking at different parts of education. But it's interesting to see the close internet connections with education and business. Um, I don't know if anyone is ready. I mean, the thing that I like the most, the thing I dislike the most about it is the, <laughs> the kinds of press releases I get, and, you know, very product yes. product productly pushes from people just expecting us to cover the latest, you know, version of their platform, which n not that many people who nobody really is, would that be that interested in reading that in the Chronicle of Higher Education. But what I love about it is I love that it's the mix of business and higher ed for me. I mean, the people in the ed tech world come at a problem with a different way, with a different way to analyze a problem. Different, I mean, I love the way that they think about um, what the issue is and what their solution is to fix it. It's not always the right solution for higher ed, but just that they come at it at sort of that 90-degree angle that's a little different than what the traditional academics always come at it is. It, it's always eye-opening for me. That all? Yeah, I would say uh, the, the thing that has surprised me the most is how uh, similar conversations were happening like 30 years ago. Um, when I started The Beat, I found a column written by Fred Hackinger, who is our namesake at Hackinger. He was an editor at the New York Times, and um, it could have been written today about education technology. Does it work? Will it replace teachers in the classroom? There's so much money being spent on it. Um, you know, uh, a lot of these things we're talking about is very modern and have been around a long time. I thought that was surprising. The thing that I've really learned the most in my four now years on the beat at Ed Week is how much implementation matters. And I didn't fully appreciate that when I started. And I felt like, you know, I came into covering technology with not a lot of background and was overwhelmed with the press releases and kind of the cheerleading for technology and, and ed tech. And it took me a while and a lot of just being on the ground in schools and talking with folks to really see that, yeah, that's all great, but there's actually real people in real institutions working with real kids who have real problems. 
who are trying to figure out how to use the software in the classroom or how to you know use the software in a central office even and that implementation is the thing that really matters and that's where the rubber meets the road and that's where much more of our attention in the media i think and you know much more of uh, the the vendor side of the uh, equations attention should be well thank you guys for joining joining me today i really appreciate you taking the time to be here this has been the ed surge on air podcast this episode was produced and edited by me, Mary Jo Matta. The interview was conducted by Jenny Abamu, and the advertisements were read by Alice Meyerhoff. You can give us a grade on the quality of this podcast by rating us on iTunes or by sending an email to us at feedback at You can also subscribe on the iPhone podcast app, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back again next week with more on the future of education. We'll see you then.